Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, September 1st, 2019, and this is show number 747. Yeah, I heard it. It's the jet episode. Well, Steve and I are finally done with our summer travels. I knew we'd been a lot of places, but we added up exactly what we did this summer. We were in three countries, took 19 flights, traveled 1,219 miles by bus, and added together flew the equivalent of the circumference of the Earth, and we did this in three months. We did get to go to the Altconf next to WWDC. We enjoyed MacStock. We saw a total eclipse of the sun in Chile. We went to Canada with our family for a week on the lake, and we got to visit with my cousins and uncle in Michigan. I'd say that's a pretty successful summer. And because of Bart and Alistair and all of the NoSilicast ways we contributed content, the NoSilicast maintained its record of no shows missed in 14 years. Well, Programming by Stealth is still on summer break, but Bart Bouchance is back with a phenomenal episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. You see, Scott Fairclaw asked him if he'd explain DOT and DOH. I had never heard of either of these terms. First, Bart gives us a full refresher on exactly what DNS is, and I needed that refresher. Then he explains the problems with DNS from a security and privacy point of view. After that, he walks us through how DOT, also known as DNS over TLS, and DOH, also known as DNS over HTTPS, which is actually HTTP over TLS, will start protecting us in the future, and in some cases, the present. Because we're just this nerdy, this episode will be found in your Chit Chat Across the Pond light feed, or the full Chit Chat Across the Pond feed. And of course, you can always go listen to episode number 606 at podfeet.com. Christian Hoschler has been listening to the NoSilicast for more than 13 years, and you're about to hear his debut contribution on the show. This is a review of Prismo 5 for iOS from CreaSeed. Yes, I am aware of the fact that there have been a lot of scan apps for iOS that replace hardware scanners for some users. I have been a Scanner Pro user for years, and that is a very good app. But still, those apps are absolutely no replacement for a dedicated scanner as far as I am concerned. If you take a really close look at a PDF generated from an iOS app, you should be able to see that the PDF originates from a scanner app and not from a dedicated real scanner. There is some blurriness to it which I do not like very much. On Wednesday, I stumbled upon this article from MacStories.net and I was intrigued. In his article, John Voorhees writes that he owns a ScanSnap S1300i, but that he is not sure why anymore. Yeah, whatever. That was my first reaction, because I have been hearing such claims over and over again. Well, I tried the app, and I already went for the 9.99 in-app purchase. It is called premium pack, which is $8.99 for US customers according to the App Store website and $4.99 as an upgrade from a previous version. Apparently, these are introductory prices that will be raised in a week. There are also subscription options available that are necessary 
if you want to use optional OCR cloud options that are more powerful in comparison to the on-device OCR according to CreaSeed. Those subscription options include the premium pack and for $9.99 annually, you get 50 OCR cloud requests per month. For $49.99 annually, you get 500 OCR cloud requests per month. I have not tried the cloud option because I was not ready for one more subscription. The cloud option also comes with OCR for handwritten documents. This option only works with scans in English handwriting. The scans done automatically with Prismo 5 are very good already and I love the options to manually get contrast, brightness, perspective and much much more right afterwards if necessary. Prismo 5 works very good in automatic mode but I really like that I am able to even further improve the automated results manually afterward. Those scans can be improved from very good to just awesome that way. I was able to achieve results that make it really hard to determine if I used my ScanSnap or if I used Prismo 5 on my iPhone. Concerning the on-device OCR results, I am fine with it. But at least in combination with German, they are not as stellar as in the demo video. Still, they are at least as good as in other apps like Scanner Pro, which I had been using for years as my number one scan app until now as I have discovered Prismo 5. What absolutely blew me away was the demo video in the App Store. Apparently, the app is able to help visually impaired users by telling them how to position their iPhone in order to scan a document correctly, when it comes down to the angle, for instance. Afterwards, it is able to read out loud the contents of the scan. I have no idea if it really works that great, but the video looked impressive for sure. Prismo 5 can be found in the App Store. It is free, but for daily use, it makes sense to buy the premium pack or to choose one of their subscription options. Last but not least, I have been a silent listener since summer of 2006, and you might guess why I had been silent if you are listening to this review right now. I have not missed a show since then. I do not consider myself a real Nocilla Castaway, as I only have been in the live chat once, but the show really feels like home and even part of the family. I miss Honda Bob and the awesome Honda Bob commercials. The Nocilla cast is the only one I listen to regularly without skipping one episode. Thank you for your amazing work. That is Allison, Steve, Bart, and everybody who contributed to the show in the past. Keep up the great work. Christian from Germany, signing off. Wow, Christian, I can't believe you've been listening for 13 years. You know, I miss Honda Bob too. I think it's funny that you don't think you're a real Nocilla castaway, because I'm pretty sure 13 years of listening gets you that moniker. 
Thanks for the great review. You know, Creaseed is a great company. I bought uh, Prismo years ago, but I've been using Scanner Pro lately. Sounds like on your advice, I should be switching back. Thanks for poking your head up to say hi to all of us. I've been getting some good feedback on my Tesla Tech series. It seems that people enjoy the strange things that I've told you about the car. But I've also noticed that people seem to be getting the impression that I don't like the car. That's not true at all. I actually love the Model 3. Let me explain why I've been telling stories of things that are weird or maybe don't work as well as I would have hoped. If every article about my car was about how awesome it is, I don't think anybody would continue to read or listen to me talk about the car. If I can sprinkle in annoyances into my stories of this incredible vehicle, you'll keep reading and listening. It seems to be human nature that we like bad news better than good news, right? As I said, I adore the Model 3. Sure, there's a lot of things that I would change if I had a magic wand, but overall, it is an amazing machine. I probably should spend more time emphasizing the awesome technology in this car, but I think I'll continue to spice things up with things that are weird or annoying to keep you listening. I haven't yet talked about the coolest feature of the Model 3, and that's all of the driver assistance technology. The level of driver assist you get in a Model 3 is highly dependent on which particular Model 3 you buy. The Model 3 comes in three versions. There's the standard range, extended range, and performance. In an ideal world, Tesla would provide a lookup table that I could point you to that explains which features you get at which level, but I've not been able to find one. I haven't even been able to find a third party who has compiled such a table. I think the reason is that Tesla's been changing what you get in each version of the Model 3 over time, so it's kind of a moving target. What I can't explain to you is the features within the top-of-the-line performance Model 3. We're going to be talking about the following technologies. Traffic-aware cruise control, auto steer, auto lane change, and navigate on autopilot. Invoking each of these driver assist technologies is a little bit tricky. You have to learn how to use the lever that comes out of the right side of the steering column, which is called the stalk, S-T-A-L-K. Let's start with the very basic things you do with the stalk, and then we'll move into self-driving. At its simplest, the stalk is used to put the car in park, drive, and reverse. If you're in park and you rotate the stalk up, you go into reverse. You'll know you're in reverse when most of the 15-inch display turns into a backup camera view. It's an incredible backup camera. It's so huge and wide-angle. It's way, way better than the view on our previous two Acuras. Now, let's say you've backed out of your driveway. To shift into drive, you rotate the stock down one click. I say one with emphasis because you're going to have to keep track of how many times you click down in future maneuvers. By the way, remember there is literally no transmission, so drive is simply drive. We don't have different levels of drive. At this point, you can invoke traffic-aware cruise control. To invoke it, you give the stock a second click down. Remember, the first tap is drive, the second tap is traffic-aware cruise control. This mode allows the car to use the forward-looking cameras and the radar sensor to determine if there's a vehicle in front of you in the same lane. That's the stuffy description from the manual. In real-life testing, traffic-aware cruise control is awesome! You can see the road's posted speed limit on your screen, and you can see your current speed, and you can set a speed you would like to go. Now, I'm a rule follower, so if it's posted at 40 miles per hour, I set mine to 40 miles per hour. Also, this is a red car, so if I go 41, I'm pretty sure I would get a ticket. Anyway, now as I cruise along the city streets, I can be in stop-and-go traffic, and I never have to accelerate or brake as long as there's a car in front of me. I say that it brakes a little more suddenly than I would I would probably do it, and it accelerates a little more slowly than I like, 
but I'm very confident that it will stop me if anyone does anything stupid in front of me and I'm not paying enough attention. Traffic-aware cruise control normally can be engaged only above 18 miles per hour, but if you have a car in front of you, it can be engaged when you're fully stopped. In my old car, cruise control was only available at higher speeds like on the freeway, so this is a huge improvement. Flying along the freeway without having to control the speed is swell, but stop-and-go traffic is ever so much more exhausting. On the steering wheel, the right thumb roller allows you to control the driving distance between you and the car in front of you while you're in traffic-aware cruise control. A graphic comes up that shows two cars and a gap between them with a number. As you click the roller left and right, the number goes from 1 to 7. Steve and I have had much debate about what this number means. Is it seconds or is it car lengths? It was time to read the manual, and here's what it says. Each setting corresponds to a time-based distance that represents how long it takes for Model 3 from its current location to reach the location of the rear bumper of the vehicle in front of you. I think what they're trying to say is that the distance you should travel behind the car in front of you goes up in relation to how fast you're going. You should be farther away when you're going faster. Now, I was taught to leave a space of one car length for every 10 miles of speed. Unfortunately, that's really hard to measure with your eyes. Steve found a Wikipedia article that talks about the two-second rule in which it says that a gap of two or three seconds between the back of the car in front of you gives a distance in which you may be able to react at a sudden stop by the person in front of you. It's possible that the number driven by the thumb wheel is indeed seconds. I'm comfortable at three seconds, while Steve kind of varies back and forth between two and three seconds. However, I found a Tesla forum where people were talking about being super bold and dialing the number all the way from seven down to six. Well, six on that dial in my Model 3 is a really huge gap, so that makes no sense at all to me. Now, this form is from mid-2018, and there were not many Model 3s on the road a year ago, so maybe the Model S distance setting is a completely different measure. I guess my advice on this one is to figure out what number seems safe to you and let the Model 3 maintain that distance for you. It's important to note the manual is full of warnings about using all of the self-driving features, and I think it's good to pay attention to what they say. For example, one warning says... Traffic-aware cruise control may occasionally cause Model 3 to brake when not required or when you are not expecting it. This can be caused by closely following a vehicle ahead, detecting vehicles or objects in adjacent lanes, especially on curves, etc. This has absolutely happened to us, but it's not really been unsettling, more of a curiosity. For example, one time someone was turning in front of us, but we could tell by their speed, direction, and lack of obstructions to their turn that they would be well out of the way before we got near them. And yet the Model 3 slowed down significantly. It felt like an over-anxious driver was at the wheel, but it did not feel dangerous. Traffic-aware cruise control has another limitation that's important to note. As of right now, it has no clue about stop signs and stop lights. If there's a car in front of me and it stops, the Model 3 stops. But if there's no one there at the light, it's going to blow right on through. Now, we've heard that there is a firmware update that's coming out to the car later this year, which includes awareness of stop signs and stop lights, but I will be extremely cautious in testing this new feature. On my city streets, using traffic-aware cruise control seems to be more trouble than it's worth. It has to be disabled when turning corners, and as I mentioned, disabled at lights and stop signs. But on freeways, it's an absolute dream, especially in stop-and-go traffic. Now, let's take automation up a notch and talk about auto steer. Reviewing our our gestures with the stock, remember down once is drive, down a second time is traffic-aware cruise control. To engage auto steer, either from regular drive or from traffic-aware cruise control, you double-tap the stock down. 
Now, that sounds confusing, and it actually took Steve and I quite a while to remember the exact sequence and how to describe it, but oddly, when you're in the car, it seems pretty intuitive. With auto steer off, the display shows your car with gray lines on either side. It sees the the lanes of, of the road you're on. When it can recognize lines, it does that. When you engage auto steer, the lines turn blue. At this point, you can relax your hands on the steering wheel because the Tesla will now keep your car centered between those those blue lines. I say to relax, but keep your hands on the wheel because you are still in charge of driving, no matter how much it feels like the car is doing everything. After a few minutes of driving, the display will start to glow with a blue background and request that you give a little torque to the wheel to let it know you're still paying attention. If you don't, it gets more insistent in the graphics, and if you still ignore it, it'll beep at you, and then it will eventually disengage auto steer. I read in the manual that if you ignore it three times within a single drive, it will not let you engage auto steer again on that entire drive. They're serious about you keeping your hands on the wheel and actually, you know, moving it from time to time. Now, I have to say that as of this stage and the talents of this vehicle, I wouldn't even dream of taking my hands off the wheel. While it's great probably 95% of the time, it is absolutely not 100% correct on its interpretation of the lines. A consistent example of where I would tweak the algorithm is when your lane is merging with another lane, say, to your left. Because the two lanes gradually become one, the lane you're in suddenly gets quite wide. Instead of continuing to hug the right line, the car will very quickly swing into dead center between these very wide apart lines. It's disconcerting, but technically not an incorrect move. Anyway, we usually take control to make it a little less weird. On long drives, auto steer plus traffic aware cruise control is fantastic. When we drove back from Fresno, about a four-hour drive, Steve said it didn't make him feel complacent, rather it made him feel like it freed him up to gain more situational awareness and made the drive less tiring. He could look far ahead to see what was happening, look at the display for cars next to him, and check the rearview mirror a bit more often. When you've got your nerves settled down, letting the car control speed with traffic-aware cruise control and color between the lines with auto steer, you can now try auto lane change. The good news is it's not a new gesture on the stock. With the other two modes engaged, when you want to have Tesla change lanes for you, you simply flip on the turn signal in the appropriate direction. Now, remember, I I mentioned that the lanes turn blue when you're in auto steer. When you hit the turn signal in auto steer, if it's safe to change lanes, that line will turn to a dashed blue, the side that you told it to turn to, and then the car will gradually change lanes for you. It is absolutely terrifying the first time you do it, but it seems to know what it's doing. If it's not safe to change lanes, the display will show a red dashed line until those cars have cleared, at which time it will turn dashed blue and proceed with the lane change. You know, I'm a huge proponent of self-driving cars, mostly because humans stink at driving. We're killing each other at alarming rates, and we simply need to stop driving. But even as I'm such a fan, and I believe they're probably better at driving than we are already, it absolutely freaks me out to let the car change lanes. All right, now that we're fully unnerved, let's go to the top level of self-driving in the Model 3. If you use the on-screen navigation to start a trip that involves freeway, highway driving, and changes of freeways, you will have the option to navigate on autopilot. This feature was only very recently enabled. I'm super new at this one and just learning how it works. In navigate on autopilot, the car will literally make all of the directional changes you require from a freeway on-ramp until you start to head off to your destination off-ramp. We tested this a couple of times in its simplest and default form, and it worked well. At the default, when it knows you need to change lanes to take another freeway or get off the freeway, a section of the screen starts to blink blue, informing you it wants to change lanes. 
You then give it permission by clicking the turn signal in the direction it wants to go. This seemed more like a baby step towards automated driving to me. If I have to agree to the lane change, that really only helps me if I would have entirely missed the navigation directions on my own. But in further reading in the manual, I discovered that you can choose to have it make those lane changes without requiring permission. Terrifying, yes, but self-driving for real. I should note, I talked to Don McAllister about this, and in England, he thinks it might be a, a, a whole European rule. This option does not exist, at least not yet. The one thing I didn't like about it asking me for permission to change lanes was that I have to be paying attention to the screen, which is in my lower peripheral vision, nowhere near where I'm looking when I'm looking at the road where I should be. It definitely divides my attention and removes some focus away from the road view itself. Remember on Nocilicast number 531 in 2015 when Dr. Gary came on the show to talk to us about the difference between focus and attention, especially while driving? Anyway, after testing it myself, I later learned, again from the manual, that if you miss the visual cue for three seconds, it will give you an audio chime. So that's swell. There are some options in Navigate on Autopilot. You can also choose to turn on a feature which allows the car to pass slower cars as it's driving along. This feature has three optional modes, Mild, Medium, and Mad Max. As Tesla explains in the manual, with mild, the system is conservative about lane changes and may result in slightly longer driving times, whereas Mad Max is designed to allow you to reach your destination in the shortest driving time possible, but will only change lanes when safe to do so. I will probably turn on mild and see what happens. I'm sure it'll be surprising when the car changes lanes by itself, but it might actually be safer if I don't feel compelled to watch that screen while driving. They emphasize in giant bold letters that you are still the one driving and you must make sure it's safe to change lanes even if the car is doing it for you. I can see how people get complacent, but I don't plan on doing that anytime soon. Now I've gone into considerable detail here, but the manual for this car is 185 pages long. I haven't scratched the surface of even this one subject of self-driving. In conclusion, I'd like to note that we paid extra to get full self-driving when it's available at a reduced cost by buying early. We don't actually know what that will entail or when regulatory approval would happen. Based on our own experiences with the autopilot features available today, it does not feel like it's close to ready yet. It's good, but you have to be paying a lot of attention. Overall, I still think I'm probably a better driver than that is, and I don't even think I'm that great of a driver. So I'd like the bar to be set higher than that. I'd like to take a moment to thank the stellar people out there who are supporting the Podfeet podcast through Patreon. No, I'm not going to list them out by name, but I want to acknowledge the fact that these people put their hard-earned dollars down week after week to help fund the costs of doing the podcast here. They find value in the content we create, and they like to give back to shows where they appreciate that value. I can't thank all of you enough for your continuing support of our shows. If you would like to join this esteemed group and show your support, go to podfeed.com slash Patreon. There's been a lot of talk lately about Siri and ways that Apple could be doing things to fix Siri. And I know uh, they got in trouble for some stuff. So I wrote a letter to them. Here it is. Dear Apple, I know that you are constantly getting flack from people about problems with Siri, and I'd like to offer you a solution. You were recently under fire for having human reviewers listen to snippets of anonymized recordings to help improve the surface. You've promised to give us a way to opt into helping you improve Siri. I'd like to suggest a very simple and effective opt-in method for you to collect the data you need to improve Siri, but nothing more. 
For all users who have opted in, you would do the following. After every single invocation of Siri, you would listen to the five seconds right after Siri responds. If at that point the user says any of the things I will list below, you would then save for analysis whatever the person said that caused Siri to be invoked, what Siri heard, and what Siri responded. Here are the statements to listen for after Siri responds to us. Siri, you're a moron. Siri, you're an idiot. I wasn't talking to you, Siri. That's not what I asked, Siri. Why are you talking to me, Siri? And any expletives in any language. Now, this may not be an inclusive list, but with just these few phrases as triggers to analyze what happened, I am convinced you would be able to harvest a vast treasure trove of examples where Siri did not meet our expectations. No need to thank me, Allison. A little over a month ago, when Steve and I did the live show, he noticed that the video coming from me was out of sync with my voice. During that show, it only got worse the longer we went on. Eventually, my video started doing what we affectionately call the Max Headroom Effect. That comes from the name of a TV show in 1984 in which the main character was a digitally sampled video head that jerked around and the voice was weird too. I put a link in the show notes to a short video in case you can't picture what we mean. This failure of my Mac to be able to stream usable video has turned into a technical rat hole unlike anything I've ever enjoyed before. Enjoyed was in quotes. If you've noticed my contributions to the show as being on the lighter side lately, it's because this problem has consumed my life. I could jump to the punchline and simply state what's wrong with my Mac, but the interesting part of this one is the journey. Steve and I are both engineers with master's degrees, so we are well trained in the concept of doing controlled experiments to isolate problems. And yet it took us well over a month to finally figure this out, and I'm not even convinced we have yet. But in order to explain the problem, I need to explain some parts of, the, of how we create the live show first. If I leave out too much detail, you won't realize how complex of a problem this was to work on. But if I tell you too much, your brains will explode. Wish me luck in finding the happy medium. Let's start with the live show hardware. The hardware I use to create the live show is high-end, but not particularly complicated. I have a 2016 15-inch MacBook Pro hooked up to a CalDigit Thunderbolt 3 dock. My, my Mac gets power. USB, Ethernet, video, and audio all from this dock. I have an LG 5K display connected via Thunderbolt to the dock, along with a Logitech C920 webcam and a set of headphones. My microphone is a Heil PR40, which is an XLR mic. The XLR connector is that round one with three giant pins you may have seen before. The important thing for this discussion is that you can't plug an XLR mic directly into a Mac. You have to use some sort of interface. I use a Shure MVI interface that takes the XLR input and converts the audio with a preamp and sends the audio back out over USB. I plug the Shure MVI into my CalDigit dock, and that input is also sent over the single Thunderbolt 3 cable to my Mac. Okay, so we've got audio in, audio out, video in, video out, and power all going to my Mac via this CalDigit Thunderbolt 3 dock. By the way, if you're confused, I did include a visual diagram in the show notes of just the hardware. I wish the software was as easy to explain as the hardware. I have a giant, annoying three-page document that explains in text and visually all of the software along with the hardware that I use for the live show. But I got to tell you, I can't even get Steve to study it, so I don't expect any of you to look at it. I put it together mostly so that I can refer to it if anything gets messed up. But let's see if we can talk through just a couple of the pieces that made this entire adventure so fascinating. I use an application called Hindenburg as my multi-track audio recording software. 
In order for the live audience to hear me talking and hear playback of any pre-recorded segments from Hindenburg, I need a way to route both of those sources. Loopback and Audio Hijack, both from Rogue Amoeba, do this job. With these two tools, I can create virtual sources and route my audio wherever I want. They do more than just this, but for this discussion, that's enough detail. I create a virtual source I call YouTube Live Input that includes me and the Hindenburg playback. Video is much more complicated. A few years ago, we started using Mimo Live from Boinks. Oliver Breidenbach is the CEO and a stellar guy, and he has worked with us a lot on this whole problem. We switched to Mimo Live for two reasons. In the previous incarnations of the live show, I used my laptop for 100% of the tools to create the video and audio streams. Not only was my laptop overly taxed, but it was also a lot of balls for me to juggle creating the audio content you hear in the real podcast, but also juggling all of this extra video and audio production stuff for the live audience. Mimo Live is a professional video production application that we now run on Steve's iMac, which allows him to do video switching between sources, control the audio sources, and create the stream to YouTube Live. With him running Mimo Live, that frees me up to simply record the podcast and stop from time to time to chat with the live audience. I'm basically on-air talent now, and I have a producer. He had this 27-inch iMac sitting there doing nothing, so it seemed like a good trade-off, and I think he kind of enjoys it. Even with him running Mimo Live, though, I do need to send my video and audio to him. Mimo Live can create what's called a Mimo Call. This is a URL that I go to in Chrome, does it work in Safari, which has controls kind of like any web conferencing tool where I choose my camera and microphone input. Now, Steve likes to show my recording software, Hindenburg, while I'm actually recording. He covers up his own face video. I think he likes to do it when he's off doing other things. In order to send that Mimo Live, and that to his Mimo Live, I use a free piece of software called NDI Scan Converter from NewTek. NDI stands for Network Device Interface, and it's a royalty-free software standard from NewTek for sending live video streams. It's a super light application. I just launched the app, pointed at Hindenburg, and now Steve can receive that stream over our internal network as an input to his Mimo Live session that he can then send to YouTube. In the Chrome window for Mimo Call, I can see everything Steve's sending to the YouTube live stream. Okay, so we're a thousand words in, and I've just got the hardware and software defined for the live show and a brief explanation of the problem we're having. Let's recap the problem to be solved. Suddenly, my video started stuttering, getting delayed by multiple seconds, and having serious sync issues. This is what we call the max headroom effect. And this is where we actually start trying to isolate the root cause. We needed a way to measure what was happening. And we first looked at my CPU utilization using iStep menus from Bajango. I could see graphs that showed my CPU was completely hammered. Chrome was the biggest hog, taking up more than 350%, where my max is 400% since I have four cores in my system. I'm recording audio and streaming webcam video and desktop video, so maybe that makes sense. But Oliver kept saying that seemed like too much. In Energy Saver, in System Preferences, the default is to have automatic graphic switching turned on, which means under some conditions your Mac will use the lower-powered integrated graphics instead of the more power-hungry discrete graphics processor in your laptop. If I made, uh, I did make sure to turn that off and then started watching the graphics card graph in iStep menus, and I found it was hitting nearly 100% the entire time I was recording. That was a good data point, but there's not much I can do about it. I had installed a free tool called Intel Power Gadget that is really neat. 
It's from Intel, and it allows me to see a running graph of the performance of my Intel processor. It also puts the frequency, speed of the processor, and core temperature inside iStep menus, which is awesome. Intel PowerGadget wasn't going to solve the problem, but it was the best way for me to test changes to the entire system and see what was causing all of these problems. Now, let's have a quick lesson on thermal management of processors and computers. They are designed for self-preservation. If you ask a lot of your processor, it will heat up and it could destroy itself. Processors are designed to avoid this, so if they get too hot, they actually slow themselves down. Now, the processor in my MacBook Pro is a 2.76, I'm sorry, 2.67 gigahertz that can turbo boost when needed up to 3.6 gigahertz, but it can also slow itself down if it detects the processor's getting too hot. With the Intel PowerGadget running, I can see the frequency slash speed of the uh, processor and the temperature at the same time. Now, if my processor is working properly, the more load I throw at it, the faster it should go up until it starts to overheat, at which time it should slow itself down. But under load, processors are supposed to turbo boost up to that faster speed. That's what turbo boost is for. Now, here's what's fascinating about the problem I'm having. As soon as I start demanding a lot of my processor, it slows down instead of speeding up. All while the temperature is sitting very low at a balmy 60 degrees C. It's not that the processor speed degrades over a long time under high load, it slows down almost immediately, well before the processor can even get a chance to heat up. I can watch Intel PowerGadget idling in like between two and a half and three gigahertz. I can launch Chrome with my video and the processor speed will plummet in less than a minute to as low as one gigahertz. Well, actually that's probably one gigahertz. I don't know. Anyway, at anything much below two gigahertz, my video starts to stutter and I get that huge, that huge lag. Max Headroom is in the house. Note that my MacBook Pro is sitting on a riser with plenty of airflow under it and sitting on a heat dissipation gel pad. It does not have time to get hot, but just in case, I give it every chance to stay cool. Our first thought was that Boinks had changed something in Mimo Live as it sends the Mimo call from Chrome, but we worked with Oliver and his brother slash developer Akeem to roll back to previous versions of Mimo Live that were working for us a couple months ago. The problem was still there. I also tested using a Google Hangout, not not Mimo Call at all, just a Google Hangout in Chrome uh, to grab my video, and the Max Headroom effect was in full force. So we categorically ruled out Mimo Live as the root cause. So perhaps something changed in Chrome. Well, the frustrating thing here is that on a Mac, you can't roll back the version of Chrome you're running. You can on a PC, and you can't use any browser other than Chrome to run Mimo Call or a Google Hangout. The, inter- the internet suggested I had a misbehaving plugin in Chrome. I didn't have many running, but I disabled them all, and yet the problem continued. I uninstalled Chrome, and I reinstalled from scratch. Max Headroom was still there. My processor was still slowing down whenever I added that load. Now, I had really high hopes that maybe my recording software Hindenburg was the root cause. Not because I don't like Hindenburg, but because the developers are awesome. They're so very responsive. I knew they'd give me a rollback version and a heartbeat to test, and if it was the root cause, they would jump on it and fix the problem. So to eliminate Hindenburg as a root cause, I swapped in Amadeus Pro, the application I used to use for recording. But sadly, that did not fix the problem. As soon as I launched Chrome and did any kind of video streaming, boom, Max Headroom was back. Would you believe I even reinstalled macOS to try to fix this? 
I didn't do a clean install, but I used the recovery partition to reinstall over the existing operating system, and that didn't fix it either. Well, now I've got software eliminated, we got to thinking maybe there was a hardware problem. I removed my CalDigit TS3 plus Thunderbolt 3 dock entirely from the equation. The problem persisted. I replaced the Thunderbolt 3 cable from my 5K display to my Mac. Same problem. Now, I should explain and mention that the fun part that throughout all of these tests, some things would appear to change the behavior, but any time I tried to repeat the same test that had shown me, yes, this is the cause, I would be unable to replicate that result. That was really, really frustrating. Steve has seen me put my head in my hands more times in the last couple of weeks than he has probably since we got married. Now I thought, okay, maybe it's my Logitech C920 webcam causing the problem. I have an internal iSight camera on my Mac and a camera in my LG display, but using both of these with the rest of the setup brought Mac's headroom back to life whenever I tried to stream video. Steve stored down his setup to let me test using his 27-inch Apple Cinema display instead of my 5K display. Thought maybe we're taxing the Mac doing the video, you know, running the video and, and displaying to that 5K display. But the problem persisted. Then we got really drastic. I dusted off my 2013 15-inch MacBook Pro and I installed all of my live show apps and configurations and used that with Steve's Apple Cinema display and we were able to see the same effect. So now we're thinking, it's got to be a software problem, right? Because if we're using a completely different piece of hardware, we have eliminated all of those variables. None of the hardware was the same. Now, I explained up front that Steve uses Mimo Live to receive and assemble the video and audio on his end and pipe it to YouTube Live. But Oliver from Boinks explained that we could put Mimo Live on my Mac and use that to send my video to Steve. That would finally eliminate Chrome from the whole plot. I installed Mimo Live on my new Mac and configured it to send my video to Steve, and things got better. But then the Mac's headroom effect came back into play. At that point, my processor slowed down and flatlined again to 1 gigahertz. I then went back to the 2013 MacBook Pro, and using Mimo Live, everything works perfectly. I can actually run the live show on this trusty six-year-old machine. By the way, that's what I'm using right now with the live show. Well, late this week, Oliver asked if we'd do a Skype session so I could show him the problem. I'm not sure why he was so willing to help since we'd clearly proven that Mimo Live was not to blame. I think it's a combination of the fact that A, he's one of the nicest people you'd ever hope to meet, combined with B, his simple fascination with the problem. We illustrated what was happening and he was just as confused as we were why a processor would slow down when more load was thrown at it. That makes no sense. While I had my 2016 MacBook Pro hooked up to the dock and all that stuff running the test to show Oliver the problem, I opened my 2013 MacBook Pro and I, this was no hardware hooked up to it, none of the displays or cameras or mics or anything like that and none of the original software. I watched the Intel Power Gadget on the older MacBook Pro, the 2013, while I launched Chrome with Mimo Call as a video input, and I watched as the processors in this old Mac climbed faster and faster. That's what it's supposed to do. I launched Hindenburg, and it took another jump up in speed just as it should. I put screenshots of both my Macs in the show notes so you can see how the new Mac with my full setup does not respond properly to high system load, but the old Mac does. As we were talking to Oliver, I happened to say, you know, the only thing I haven't changed is my microphone. And then I thought, I haven't changed my microphone. I thought back to the one experiment I didn't mention early on. 
At one point, I unplugged every single bit of hardware from my Mac, the 2016, and I ran a test, and the Mac's headroom effect was nowhere to be found. I've been withholding a little detail from you. At some point in the not-too-distant past, I was listening to Dave Hamilton on the Mac Geek Gab telling John F. Braun that you never want to plug a microphone into a USB hub. I've been having some problems while recording video tutorials for Screencast Online where I was getting these little clicks. I thought, maybe it's because I've got my mic interface plugged into my dock. Now, dock is not a hub, so it shouldn't have caused that problem, but I moved my Shure MVI to be directly connected to my Mac using a USB dongle. So now, with all of this information and all of these graphs and all of these tools, I unplugged my mic and its Shure uh, MVI interface, and I had zero stutter on my 2016 Mac, and my processor stayed at reasonable speed. Now, this was only true if I do not run Chrome, but I used Mimo Live to broadcast video. Now, the 15-inch MacBook Pro has four Thunderbolt 3 ports, two on each side. I had put my mic interface into the left side via USB-C, along with the Thunderbolt cable coming from the dock for everything else. So both of the ports on the left side were being used. I moved the mic over to the right side instead, and my CPU stayed high even with video streaming. Now, I've been running experiments on this problem for quite some time, and so many times I'd get a conclusive result, but I'd be unable to replicate the results. Not to be fooled again, I swapped my mic back and forth from left to right and back again, and 100% of the time it was on the left, the CPU would drop, and on the right it would go back up. So maybe it's not the mic at all. Maybe it's the Thunderbolt 3 controller on the left that's failing. I sent Oliver a note declaring victory, and I went to sleep. And then when I got up in the morning, I reran the test. I cannot replicate my success of yesterday. It does not matter which side I plug my mic interface into. The CPU speed drops like a stone if I'm sending video. I am so tired of this problem. Now, I actually skipped a couple of important details that I'll tell you about now. This Mac has a failing battery. And I have a ticket open with Apple on the issue. And I do plan on taking it in for a replacement a week from Monday. This Mac also has a butterfly keyboard double letter failure. Now, these things may not seem related, but I was talking to Bart about it, and I learned that the CPU in a laptop gets its power directly from the battery rather than the power supply, because it only needs 5 watts. So maybe the processor is slowing down because it's not getting enough power from the failing battery. Now, the good news is that I bought AppleCare, and it doesn't run out till November. Sounds to me like there's a really good chance that the entire bottom case of my Mac is going to be replaced since just about everything but the display is falling apart as I speak. The other good news is that I did not sell my 2013 MacBook Pro, so the show will go on. Well, I'm exhausted from this week, and this is going to wind up the show. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. In fact, you can send things to uh, to me to send to Bart or directly to Bart for Chit Chat Across the Pond, like Scott did this week. Bart really loved having inspiration, having somebody ask him about something he knows about, because that gave him a great chance to uh, do a show that he was really excited about. Anyway, if you want to send any suggestions to me, you can email them to me at allison at podfeet.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, anything you want to look for? Starts with podfeed.com slash whatever you're looking for. You want to become a Patreon like all those cool patrons that we already have? Podfeed.com slash Patreon. Want to join the discussion? There's two ways. If you like Facebook, podfeed.com slash Facebook. If you hate Facebook, podfeed.com slash Slack. Heck, join both groups. Lots of people do that too. 
you want to talk to Bart, you definitely want to do podfeet.com slash slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show to meet Max Headroom, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.